0: please welcome to the stage at the Apple Store, Covent Garden in London, tonight's special guest, William Boyd.
1: Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me? I think you can. Um, Hold your hands up if it's uh, not audible at the back. Uh, Very happy to be here Um, to introduce my new novel, Sweet Caress. This is actually my first event So I'm fresh, not jaded, and uh, very happy to introduce the book to you, which I have here in my hand. I might read a couple of paragraphs to you uh, in due course. Um, But uh, I thought that the interesting thing to do um, before I uh, read a page or two would be to tell you a little bit about how the book evolved Um, I always think that's what's intriguing for um, non-writers or would-be writers or perhaps uh, current writers to find out how one particular novelist arrives at writing a novel. This is my 14th novel, Um, so I suppose I qualify as an old pro now but they all start in the same sort of way, as uh, the, the glimmering of an idea, uh, and that half-formed idea begins to uh, develop. In this case, um, it's hindsight that provides the clue to why I decided to write this quite long novel, 450 pages uh, about a, a woman photographer in the 20th century. Uh, I realize that I've, over my longish career, written two what I call full-life novels, Um, novels that deal with a character's life from cradle to grave. Uh, It's quite a tricky thing to do, technically, because uh, you can't actually write a whole life uh, in in a novel and keep that novel under... 2,000 pages, so structurally it poses certain problems. Uh, The first time I tackled it was in 1987 when I wrote a novel called The New Confessions, which uh, followed the career of a film director called John James Todd, Uh, and it takes the form of a kind of fake autobiography. John James Todd uh, is looking back on his life and uh, reflecting on his misfortunes and his good fortunes. Uh, he's born in 1899, and by the time we uh, reach the end of the novel, it's the mid-1970s. Actually, I, now I think about it, I I have written four full-life novels, but the, the second one I tackled uh, was an art hoax. Uh, I wrote a, a fake biography of a fake artist called Nat Tate. Uh, he had a short, unhappy life. He was born in 1928 and committed suicide in 1960. So his life only spanned about 80 pages. But it is a full life novel. So that maybe that's a little footnote before I moved on to my next long novel which you may have heard of it's called any human heart and this time instead of having tackled autobiography and biography i decided to write the novel in the form of a, a series of intimate journals and this c- central character of this novel is called logan mount stewart and he kept a kept a journal throughout most of his life it, it start picks picks up his story when he's about a 17 year old schoolboy, and ends um, at the end of the 20th century when he's a very old man in his late 80s. Uh, That's probably the longest novel I've written. And I then sort of stopped writing these full-life novels for a few years and wrote uh, a couple of spy novels. I wrote a James Bond novel uh, and there will be a chance to ask me questions about any of these later on, if you want to. And when I was, when I, whenever I'm writing a novel, any particular novel, I always have in my head a couple of ideas, or sometimes three ideas, of the next novel I might write. And this is a kind of fear, in a way, a, a preemptive strike against writer's block. Um, I find that the idea of not being able to write or not having an idea is utterly terrifying. I have friends of mine, very successful novelists, who've endured seven or eight years of of writer's block. And for my own peace of mind, uh, I find that if I'm writing a novel and I have the notions of other novels, other potential novels in my head, I relax a bit. And in the case of um, this novel, Sweet Caress, the glimmering idea that was there in my head was that, having written the the lives of two men, I should really write the full life of a woman, and that was that was that was basic the basic idea I had, and I've um, I the reason I thought of that with some confidence was that I have written from the point of view of a woman. Uh, several times, in fact. I, I quite like changing sex for the duration of a novel. And I've written three novels from the point of view of a woman. And so, I, contemplating what I might do next, uh, this was after my novel called Waiting for Sunrise, which is a World War I spy novel, I thought I should try and write the full life, cradle to grave, story of a woman uh, and in the 20th century, because this century is barely advanced. And so uh, I thought I would write a story of a woman's life in the 20th century. And th- what happens after that? This is the, uh, th- that's the basic idea. And then what takes place thereafter is a kind of question and answer session that's, that's very protracted. I ask myself a question maybe a very simple question, like, what's her name? And the answer I get to that question provides another three questions, and they answer those three questions, and so on exponentially. The question and answers go on, and I begin to amass an aggregate of information about this character. So very early on, I thought, well, I'm going to start somewhere at the beginning of the 20th century, um, and her name was going to be Amory Clay. Um, and the, one of the first questions I asked myself after that was, well, what's she going to do in, the, in her life? And I'd become very intrigued by photography. Um, I take photographs, everybody in the world takes photographs now. I, I read somewhere that there were 30 billion selfies taken last year. So how many other billions of photographs join those? that, that 30 billion? Uh, it, it's unimaginable. Another statistic I heard was that last year, more photographs were taken than in the entire history of photography. Uh, but And yet, uh, there's something about photography that uh is not just a kind of monstrous profusion of of fleetingly glimpsed images that are then forgotten. There are photographs that stay with us, that beguile us, that shock us, that, that resonate. And what is it about that photographic image that makes a photograph great, that makes it a work of art? Because I, pho- I do think photography is an art form. There are, there are some people who disagree with that, um, but I, uh, my own feelings is that you know, there are photographs that I remember as vividly as, as great paintings or uh, as, as great pieces of music. Uh, they, they, they form part of my personal cultural pantheon. Th- therefore, surely, photography deserves to be considered as an art form. If if those images have that kind of resonance, uh, the two two other aspects about photography that that intrigued me. Um, one is that uh, we can all take a great photograph. It's a very democratic art form. Anybody with with a bit of luck and uh, admittedly being in the right place at the right time, can take a photograph as as good as. Cartier-Bresson or or as Jacques-Henri Lartigue. uh, It's uh, a very democratic form that admits all applicants. And the other thing as I did my research is I realized that it's also very egalitarian. In the history of photography, particularly as it developed in the early 20th century, uh, there was no glass ceiling women were uh, as readily admitted into the profession as men. And in Europe, before the First World War, there were many very successful women professional photographers. And in the interwar period, uh, again largely in Europe, uh, many women had as successful a career as men. This is not true in the other art forms, necessarily, or indeed other professions. It took a long time for women to achieve that equal status, and indeed some might argue that there's still a struggle to maintain that or to achieve it. But in photography, women were able to uh, thrive alongside their male counterparts uh, from very early on in the 20th century. I thought, continuing or picking up on my question-and-answer session, I thought it would be very interesting to take my, my woman protagonist, Amory Clay, who I'd named by now, and make her a professional photographer. And there are all sorts of other reasons why that was useful to me, because the profession allow th- would allow her to be independent uh, and allow her to travel and allow her to visit all sorts of uh, historical periods and geographical locales that intrigued me. By making her a woman photographer, I was able to fill out a life in a way that I might not have been able to do had she been, say, a teacher or or a civil servant. So the profession of woman photographer became Amory's profession. She starts off in the early 1920s working as an assistant for her uncle, who's a society photographer, rather in the Cecil Beaton mode, taking the Beaumont of London society. Um, He takes photographs of the Prince of Wales, for example. And Amory's career as a photographer, leaping ahead somewhat, uh, allows her to start off as a society photographer, then become a kind of social commentator, in the way that, say, a photographer like uh, like Brassai was uh, in in France. She decides to become to create a scandal. She wants to become notorious, and so she goes to Berlin to to take prostitutes in Berlin in the nineteen twenties. Uh, and her career and her I won't spoil the novel for you for those who haven't read it, but the ca- her career follows, in a way, the, the sort of development uh, of the photographic profession in the 20th century. Uh, she w- and she takes fashion photography, and she t- ends up as a war photographer, um, which was perhaps the one area of photography that was slow to admit women, though one of the most famous women photographers is a woman called Gerda Taro, who was taking, uh, who was a war photographer in the Spanish Civil War in the, in the late 1930s. And uh, she died actually in a stupid and tragic accident when she was taking photographs of a, a battle between the fascists and Republican forces. She was, she jumped on a car and was being sped away from the battlefield and something went wrong with a car and it crashed into a, a tank and uh, she was crushed to death. And one wonders that had Gerda Taro, she was in her late 20s then, and she survived, she might have become the first truly great woman war photographer. She's sort of been resurrected um, in latter years, but um, in a way she was the first woman to take photographs of a combat zone and her uh, and should be recognized as that, because the, the woman we've all heard of who've taken war photo- photographs was Lee, was Lee Miller. Lee Miller was an American, but her whole artistic training and her whole artistic credo, if you like, was developed in, in France. So she's a sort of pseudo-European. But she was one of the few women war photographers who took photographs in uh, World War II and famously was uh, one of the f- first photographers into Hitler's Eagle's Nest, Garden in, in Austria. And those famous photographs she took sitting in Hitler's bath, uh, ones that we were all familiar with. Anyway, my photographer, Amory, sort of follows that pattern and becomes a war photographer in World War II and, and then on, uh, and winds up her professional career in Vietnam in the 1960s. So I follow the, the development of uh, the history of photography through uh, Amory Clay. And one of the things I've done in this novel, which I think is unprecedented, is I've included 73 photographs. Um, photographs have appeared in novels from time to time, but usually half a dozen or so and often they're just symbolic, a piece of driftwood on a beach or an open gate leading to a country lane or something like that, but because I had um, chosen Amory's career as a photographer, I thought I had an opportunity here to do something which is another plan, a program, ambition of mine, which I, again, with hindsight, realize I've been pursuing since 1987, to try and push fiction into the world of the real, to try and uh, blur the boundary between what is made up and what seems real. Because it's one of the paradoxes of, uh, of life, is that truth is very hard to grasp and the various media we have that purport to tell the truth are, are uh, often as manipulated and as shaped as, as anything fictitious and particularly that that's particularly true when it comes to human beings um, because the human beings are apa- are, are opaque uh, even people as close to you as your' your children, your your spouse, your parents, who seem terribly familiar, actually are mysterious. Nobody really knows what's going on in anybody's head. And one of the ways of finding out what makes us tick, what makes us um, function and thrive or not on this curious adventure we're all on, this journey from cradle to grave uh, is to read novels, because novels enshrine uh, enshrine truths. Again, this is the paradox, because they can be verified. Because the the truths that are in a novel originate in the mind of the novelist, and everything that's written down is absolutely non-contradictory, because that's what the novelist has decided. So if you want to know what people are thinking, if you want to know how people function in run-of-the-mill situations or in extraordinary situations, I would suggest that the best thing to do is to read a novel, Um, because there you'll get access to people's inner lives uh, in a way that's unequivocal and absolutely verifiable or rather uh, non-verifiable in the sense that you don't need to verify it because the novelist says this is the case. So this enterprise I've embarked on in writing these, these three long life novels is an attempt to say this is what lives are like. This is what people feel when they fall in love or when they're disappointed or when, some p- or when tragedy strikes and I've tried to enhance that situation which exists in, in fiction anyway by pushing my fictions into the world of what you would regard as non-fiction, um, history, journalism, reportage, biography, autobiography and i realize looking back that i ha- as i s- said at the beginning i've written a, a fake autobiography a fake biography a fake literary journal and now in in sweet caress i think i've gone another step further in writing an entirely fictitious life but illustrating it with photographs of these fictitious people so How did that come about? All the photographs in Sweet Caress, the 73 photographs I've chosen, are anonymous. They're known as found photographs. Um, I have quite a collection myself, which I bought over the years at junk shops or car boot sales or at uh, antique fairs in in France. Um, And I don't know who took these photographs or who is in them. Um, they've effectively been discarded, i suppose uh they've either been thrown away or they've been sold for pennies. so whoever owned them at one stage or whoever um, whoever families were in them or whoever the personages in these photographs were. Have decided to get rid of them and sell them, um, so I have bought them. Um, I bought about 2,000 photographs altogether. I think over the the two years or so that I was planning, uh, Sweet Caress, and f- from those 2,000 I made this very small selection, and I've r- I've in a way revivified those people in the photographs because I have named them, and dated them and given them a context. And whoever they were then, they are now my creatures. Um, they are the, p- the people that populate the novel of Sweet Caress. And I think and I've, a lot of people have read the novel by now, even though today is publication day, by the way. Um, a lot of people have read the novel now. And the, the, the curious effect of reading a work of fiction And seeing a photograph of a character in that novel doesn't detract from the fiction. It seems, in a curious way, to enhance it. So you're reading about a character, you turn the page, and there's a photograph of them, Um, and it makes the. This is the 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 fourth version, if you like, of my. random attempt to colonize the real uh it, it makes my fiction seem strangely non-fictional it 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 makes the characters in my novel seem to have a life if you like beyond the pages of the novel anyway you you readers will be the ultimate judge of it but that was the original plan um I've done it before. Um, I uh, had a, uh, uh, in my art hoax of Nat Tate, I used anonymous photographs. So I had a a, a dry run, if you like. But in Sweet Caress, I've really um, pushed this new development um, to, I think, uh, an, an unprecedented length. And um, have illustrated this long novel with with many many black and white photographs. Um, some of them, I think, are really good photographs. I found uh, astonishing anonymous photographs in my in my long search. Photographs that could you could hang in a gallery, um, and it's a, a, a curious um, counterbalance to the. The monstrous profusion of digital images that we have today—that somehow these uh, strange one-off black and white images have a, a, a curious power to to move or to register with us. Anyway, I thought I would give you a, a very short uh, reading of the novel, just to give you a flavor of what I was talking about, and it's to do with photography, aptly. Uh, It's the very first page of the novel. Um, And after I've finished reading, um, maybe we could have a question and answer session. Uh, Do feel free to ask me about anything uh, about the writing life, not necessarily about this latest novel, which I'm sure is not been read by many of you, if any at all, or uh, but any of my other novels or any other other aspects of the writing life you might be intrigued by, because I've I've done all sorts of writing. Um, I've written films and television, short films. I've written a lot of journalism. Uh, I've a, I've started writing for the theatre. My second play is coming on in March next year at Hampstead Theatre. Um, tickets will go on sale shortly, um, and uh, so I've. Had a kind of diverse writing life. So, if you're curious about any of these aspects of it, don't hesitate to ask me, and I'll do my level best to answer. But let me just read uh, a short uh, couple of paragraphs from the opening of *Sweet Caress*. There's no real need to set this up, but the the, the novel structure is uh, uh, Amory Clay is an elderly lady in her 69th year approaching her 70th birthday and her life has reached a kind of crisis point and this has provoked her to look back on her past and its its ups and downs and its uh, successes and failures and the the rackety uh, roller coaster aspect of her 3 score years and 10 on this small planet circling an insignificant star and her first reflection is to, to look back at the, the very first photograph she took which was in uh, 1915 when she was a, a young girl with her first small camera and uh, this is what she took and this is what she thinks. What drew me down there I wonder to the edge of the garden. I remember the summer light, the trees, the bushes, the grass luminously green, basted by the bland, benevolent late afternoon sun. Was it the light? But there was the laughter also coming from where a group of people had gathered by the pond. Someone must have been horsing around, making everyone laugh. The light and the laughter then. I was in the house, in my bedroom, bored, with the window open wide so I could hear the chatter of conversation from the guests. And then the sudden arpeggio of delighted laughter came that made me slip off my bed and go to the window to see the gentlemen and the ladies and the marquee and the trestle tables laid out with, laid, laid out with canapes and punch bowls. I was curious. Why were they making their way towards the pond? What was the source of this merriment? So I hurried downstairs to join them. And then, halfway across the lawn, I turned and ran back to the house to fetch my camera. Why did I do that? I think I have an idea now, all these years later. I wanted to capture that moment, that benign congregation in the garden on a warm summer evening in England, to capture it and imprison it forever. Somehow I sensed I could stop time's relentless motion and hold that scene, that split second, with the ladies and the gentlemen in their finery, as they laughed, careless and untroubled. I would catch them fast, eternally, thanks to the properties of my wonderful machine. In my hands, I had the power to stop time, or so I fancied. Uh, I think that, you know, in a way that encapsulates. What I feel is the essential strength of photography, um, and some of you might disagree with me, but I think what makes photography special and this may seem to diminish it somewhat, but it is a democratic art form is the snapshot. Um, only photography can do this to st- it 's a stop time device, and I think that when i well when I think of the photographs that stay with me that um, are memorable it is because they have frozen the moment of time uh, and have somehow distilled a moment and there are other ideas I have whether it should be whether photographs uh, should be monochrome essentially or um, should not try to mimic the conventions of of the the fine arts, particularly Beaux-Arts classicism. But I think that the snapshot is in essence what makes photography great and why we take photographs and why they they haunt us. Um, And it's not to be sniffed at. I think it's a remarkable thing that we have created in the camera. And uh, it needn't just be on film, analog, it can be digital as well, but I think that's what uh, makes us take photographs and makes photographs uh, meaningful to us. They stop time. And this is something that Amory comes to realize at the end of her life as she looks back on it. Anyway, um, that's a very rough uh, sketch of how the novel took shape and gives you some idea of uh, its scope and its ambitions and also its its um larger themes um so i would now say it's um over to you any questions and i'll uh, happily happily respond to them anybody got anything they'd like to ask me yes that was so interesting. Thank you very much. Um, I was just going to ask about your um, James Bond novel. When you were writing it, did you envision Bond as yourself, or was it perhaps a character that's uh, sorry, an actor that's played the role? No, I, I certainly wouldn't envisage him as me. Um, it's a good question actually because. Uh it was a very interesting job to be asked to do, and uh, I was very. Speci- I did a tremendous amount of research in the original Ian Fleming novels, and I decided to set my novel in 1969, when Bond would have been 45 years old, uh, according to Ian Fleming. Uh, according to Ian Fleming, James Bond was born in 1924. So in 69, he'd be 45. And again, according to Fleming, when you're 45 and an 00 with a license to kill, that's when you're retired. So in a way, my bond in my novel was at the potential end of his career as, a, as 007. You know, he might, might have gone on to do some other form of espionage, but he he was on the point of losing his license to kill. And so he's a middle-aged man. Uh, he's had a, a, one hell of a life. And so it was an interesting uh, moment to contemplate what kind of a man he was and again because i did so much research into fleming's novels fleming is very specific about what bond looked like so i ignored all the bond actors um over the years and i've I've actually know three of them i've worked with three of them Um, sean connery pierce brosnan and and daniel craig but i ignored uh, all of them and their various physiognomies because Fleming was very precise about what his James Bond looked like. Um, I'm sure hardly any of you have heard of the American singer-songwriter Hoagie Carmichael, but Fleming says in the Bond novels on three occasions that James Bond looked like the American singer Hoagie Carmichael. Uh, He was uh, was an actor, so he's in a few films. He was a a tall, rangy man, an all, with a very dark complexion and, and dark black hair, handsome. Um, so when Fleming was writing Bond, he had the image of this real person, Hoagy Carmichael, in mind. And so when I was writing my Bond, um, I thought of Hoagy Carmichael as well. And bizarrely, uh, my father was a great fan of Hoagy Carmichael. So I listened to Hoagy Carmichael as I was growing up, and... I even have an old um, vinyl disc of Hoagy Carmichael with a, a fine picture of him. But you can you can find images of him on the on the internet very easily, and you'll see how he could quite easily be a, a James Bond figure. I suppose um, you would say that Connery probably resembles him the most, but also Timothy Dalton bears a, a certain resemblance to Hoagy Carmichael. But I had the image of that singer in mind as I wrote my James Bond, uh, my, my aging spy, uh, contemplating the end of his uh, adventures. And it's, uh, it was quite useful, actually. Um, I, I don't s- make it specific, but it was quite interesting to, to bring him to mind rather than the images from the movies which dominate everybody's impressions of Bond. I went back to the novels, I went back to Fleming's original conception and uh, stuck with that.
0: Uh, Thank you very much indeed. Um, Are you prepared for one of your creations to come back to life and to receive a missive telling you that that is great uncle Bill or something of that nature?
1: Oh, you mean in the the photographs? In the photos. Um, Well, Well, I I would quite like that, actually. and I, um, I've done some investigation about the, the legal ramifications of, of using these found photographs. Um, I think that most of the people in the photographs I, I use must be dead. Um, so that's not an issue. But uh, towards the end of the novel, as, we, as we the novel gets into the 1970s and the photographs that appear in the 1970s, it's entirely conceivable that some of the the anonymous people in the novel uh, are alive and are, you know, men and women in their, you know, 70s or 80s. There's n- there's no p- there's no legal problem um, apparently, unless I said they were, you know, dangerous criminals or, or, or slandered them in, in some way. But because these I haven't stolen these images, they were thrown away or, or sold, so they, they belong to, to, to me, the purchaser. Um, but I, I I would be quite interested if somebody came forward and said, that's my Uncle Harry or my Auntie Jean, uh, or that's me, even. Um, but I, I haven't made any identification that would be offensive. So um, there's no cause for complaint. and how the photographs came to be in my hands is, is another matter. as a matter for them, but uh, they, belong, they belong to me now, and so I can use them as I see fit. Um, so uh, I, I would be intrigued if s- somebody, I don't want to, s- to spoil the, the novel for anyone who hasn't read it, but certainly there are pictures of young people in the 1970s, at towards the end of the novel, who entirely conceivably could be alive today and might be uh, amazed to pick up the book and find <laughs> a picture of their younger self in it. Um, but there's, there's nothing uh, that would cause upset or offense in the identities that I've given them.
0: Yes? Good evening. Yeah. Following on from that last question, um, with respect to The people in those photographs. Have you has it? Have you considered, uh, as with the uh, Nat Tate um, uh, expose, etc., what happened? um, Setting up uh, an exhibition of uh, uh, a public exhibition of the photographs.
1: Yes, I have actually. Um, You're you're, you're way ahead of me. Um, uh, That would
0: that would then uh, enable the public. Internationally, to maybe put names to the people in those photographs
1: well I think I mean that that may happen, but I, I have thought of um, producing a little um, coffee table book of the the, the, the collected photographs of Amory Clay uh, and presenting them as it were her photographs rather than try to find out the identity of the, the the real people in the photographs. I mean, Nat Tate's a very interesting example because um, there is one photograph of Nat Tate um, which I put on the cover of the book and it has been disseminated throughout the world over since 1998 and nobody has come forward to identify this very distinctive handsome man who I decided to call Nat Tate. So I I wonder if it would happen but um, I think there's a sense in wh- there is a kind of nat Tate dimension to uh sweet caress in that i I could further the career of Amory clay uh, a f- the photographer and present her work to the world uh, as if it were as if she were a real photographer who i've discovered that's
0: the, that was the next follow up yeah. question I was going to ask you thank you
1: yeah, Here front, yeah. oh well uh hello um You gave the hint already, so you have several uh, ideas for the next uh, novel project. Yes. And this is my first question. My uh, follow-up question is, uh, have you ever thought about expanding um, on things like you did in Brazzaville Beach, where you found you made some very sensible uh,
0: comments making up the character of the mathematician. So you seem to be interested
1: in mathematics and the kind of psychology of um, being a mathematician, so any thoughts of uh, going deeper into that? Well, I, d- I don't know. I, I get these enthusiasms, and um, I explore them. Uh, the mathematician in Brazzaville Beach is actually my second mathematician. In my novel, The New Confessions, there's another mathematician. And that uh, so that was n- New Confessions was 1987, Brazzaville Beach was 1990, so that's a three or four year fascination with uh, the, the higher reaches of mathematics and of the of physics and also the the personalities of these people of people who can operate and understand these concepts but it's it sort of dwindled now um, so I I doubt that I'll I'll explore that again um, but I have thought of writing sequels or carrying on some of my novels but I think I'll save that for my very old age when I've run out of ideas and, and can't think of anything to to write I've always want, I've always thought of writing a sequel to my very first novel a good man in Africa um, and I, I tend to leave my novels with very open-ended anyway I, d- I don't believe in in um, tying up every uh, loose end and in and, and, and a neat knot I, I think life isn't like that so your fiction your realistic fiction shouldn't be like that I I leave the I leave them very open, so there's a potential for a sequel or a potential for further investigation. I mean, you're right, Brazzaville Beach. What happens to Hope Clearwater, the the heroine at the centre? She's a still a young woman, um, but I I doubt I'll ever I'll ever write about uh, the the further adventures of my various characters. I've always got too many ideas and too many other things that I want to write about, so I lea- I leave them open, but I don't think I'll. I'll exploit them. Yes, there we um, This is about any human heart. And it had an incredibly profound effect on me at the time I read it. And I gave it to friends of mine, just saying, you've got to read this. And they say, why? And I said, just read it. And it had a similarly profound effect on many of them. I mean, one of them just read it all night, that kind of very, did you, but it's a quiet book,
0: I know some fairly sad things happen, but it's a quiet book, it's an episodic
1: book, what made you write that, how, where did that come from, how did that, where did any human heart come from? Well, again, it's this, this, it was a very specific idea to write another full life, And I keep a journal. I've kept a journal. I started writing a journal, an intimate journal, a private diary when I was 18 years old. And I stopped at 21 and I started again at 27. I've kept going ever since. So I have this document, which must be some millions of words long now, which is just an account of my life. It's not deep thoughts or anything. It's just an account of my working life and, and the things that happened to me. And it struck me that Um, the journal form, which is a literary form, is actually how we live. Uh, We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, We don't know that that person we met in the pub last night is going to be our future wife or husband. Um, Life is, the future is a a blur, a void. But most novels are actually very highly structured and very um, knowing and shaped. So the the, idea for, the basic idea for, for Any Human Heart was, could I write a long novel uh, about one man's life in this format, in the, in the journal format? And it's, again, it's quite rare. There are a few novels written as journals, but they're much shorter than mine. Um, so I, that was the technical challenge. And I think uh, that's why it affects you, because as you read about Logan Mount Stewart's life, and as it unfolds, you are exactly in the same position as him, and indeed he is in exactly the same position as you, the reader. You do not know what's going to happen in the future. And so as you read, as Logan's life unfolds and unspools, you live it with him. And, I, and, and you know, life is boring. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Life has its uh, unsatisfactory moments. Occasionally it's exciting. Occasionally, you might meet somebody interesting. So, uh, it, it, there was a lot of artifice in trying to make it seem artless and random. And, but I, I have a feeling that it was because it was written as a journal. This, you know, it's a 500-page novel written as a, a journal. It starts in, um, he, Logan was born in 1906 and dies in 1992, I think. Um, so, he lives through every decade of the 20th century. Um, but there are great tracts of his life when he's very poor. Um, he has success early in life. Uh, he has great tragedy. Um, he makes mistakes. But you you live his life as he lives it, and that's entirely because it's written as an intimate journal. You know, he talks about going to the dentist, or he talks about um, feeling sick when he has to, uh, you know, meet somebody important. So there's all the random little details of a of everybody's life is somehow in his life. And I think that's why it has an effect. If I'd written it as, as an orthodox novel, I don't think it would have been as powerful. And so that was where the idea came from. And that was my, um, it was um, It was somehow to, because I'm a great, because I keep a journal, and I, I reread it, it's a fascinating document. Um, uh, and I'm a great reader of other journals, you know, famous uh, writers like um, Peeps or um, Kilvert. They're f- very famous diaries that are classics of literature which are, are very compelling. Boswell, another one, Dr. Johnson's uh, biographer. Um, I've I read a lot of journals and it, the idea came to me that somehow the journal form is the the perfect literary form for capturing a human life and so i set out to try and do that and, but i th- i think because i mean your reaction is is very typical uh, i'm delighted to say of of people who read any human heart uh, and i and i th- and my my feeling is that it's because it's written that way um, but it's uh, it seems artless and it seems as you say quiet or nothing much happens but you're held because it's like everybody's life. Thank you. Yes, in front here: you. Uh, hello. I wor-
0: uh, thank you very much, Mr. Boyd. Uh, I work at a radio station that you were at this morning. Oh, right. And they knew <laughs> I was a big fan, so they told me. So I polished my shoes, and I brought in my books for you to sign, and they told me you were in at 11 o'clock, and you were in at 10 o'clock. So, would you mind (laughs) signing my books later as my first question? Sure, no problem. And the second question is, as someone who's just named a dog Logan, your names of your characters can be incredible. I'm just wondering, do sometimes do they come at the start? Is the name the first thing you have? Does it come late in the process, or is it always a little
1: bit different for each character? No, I think it's a very good point. I think it's very important uh, how you name your characters. And I take enormous care uh, as I christen them, uh, even the most minor walk-on role, you know, characters only on I- in for a page or two. Um, I think it's, uh, it's a sort of trick of the trade in a way that there are perfectly good names like, you know, James Thompson or Sally Brown, but they don't do much for you. Um, So I try always to create a name that is just slightly strange, not Dickensian, um, uh, Mr. Squeers or or whatever, um, uh, Jenny Wren, but names that have a very slight spin to them. Um, For example, the the central character of uh, new confessions is called John James Todd he's called John Todd it might not be so interesting but calling him John James Todd suddenly makes his name memorable and I and I I collect names if I see an interesting name I'll write it down um, I'll give you an example I was um, I was writing my uh, third novel and I, I was about to write it and I hadn't got a name for my character and I went to a, a garage to hire a car and the the, the the big glass doors of this garage were being replaced. And the, the workmen who were working on that had on their overalls the name Henderson Doors, D-O-O-R-S. And I thought, that's rather a good name, Henderson Doors. So I, I wrote it down, but I changed it to D-O-R-E-S, and hence the name of my the character in Stars and Bars is called Henderson Doors. Um, so I... And that's a, you know it's a perfectly plausible name, um, but it's slightly odd, and uh, so all my characters um, I would say have interesting names that just you know verge on the slightly eccentric. But it's a deliberate attempt to make them memorable because I think if you name a character well, um, you don't call him you know uh, Martin Brown, perfectly good name. There are any Martin Browns in the audience. Um, if you call him uh, Scholto Far, as I have in this novel, uh, perfectly good Scottish name, um, but it's memorable, and the, uh, instantly I think the character comes alive on the page to a certain extent. Uh, quite a, even before you've described what he or she looks like, somehow the name has a resonance, and and, the, and in the reader's mind has has a place. So. I, I do take enormous pains to to get the names right um and I'm uh, I'm always on the lookout for for interesting interesting christian names and interesting surnames and conjoining them for my novels yes hi uh, Wait, this one? Yeah, hi. Um, One of the things I've noticed in in your novels quite frequently is that you start at the end in a flashback, right, going back to the New Confessions and all the way up to the new one. I'm wondering what is it that draws you to essentially starting at the end and how that might affect the way the reader reads the book if they start at the last year of her life or something and then we're shoved right back to the start. Well, it's actually, um, as I suggested earlier, it's actually a form of um, structural sleight of hand in a way because... A simple chronological telling of a story um, requires you to tell everything. As soon as you fracture a narrative, uh, you're in a position to to elide, to to cover a lot of ground quite neatly. So in the case of these long novels where I'm dealing with entire lives, actually, Any Human Heart was very hard because I was going chronologically. uh, in the case of these long novels, it's often uh, technically, structurally, a good idea to fracture the narrative, to move around through time so that you don't have to cover every single month of every single year that person lived. But the curious effect of doing that is that, you, that you, the reader has a feeling of uh, massive richness of detail. Um, you know, Sweet Caress is 450 pages long, so it's quite a long novel. But it does cover seventy years of a person's life, um, and you feel, I think, when you finish the novel, that you you know everything about Amory. You know what she was doing in in, in every given year she was living, pretty much. Um, so it's it's a kind of novelistic technique to allow you to to get a quart into a pint pot, and. Um, uh, you know, I fracture narrative a lot, actually. Um, particularly I in my short stories, I've experimented with all sorts of um, tricksy time schemes to see how much you can do with a, uh, with a non-chronological narrative. Um, and so, but I think in the case of New Confessions and, and Sweet Caress, it's simply a way of allowing you to cover all the ground without laboriously covering the ground, if you know what I mean. Another question there? Hi. Um, I'm fascinated by the link between photography and the narrative. Um, I'm really interested in the story of Vivian Mayer. And also, um, I remember watching a, a drama, a Stephen Polyakov drama a number of years ago called Shooting the Past, where they use the breaking up of a photographic collection to tell yes. an amazing story that kind of swirls around. Um, so that's why I'm particularly looking forward to uh, reading the book. So I don't know whether that's a question, but I just uh, wanted to, to say, did you you know were you aware of either of those? Well, uh, I mean, Vivian May's story I think has broken relatively recently uh, in the last two or three years. I I think. Um, I mean, I obviously I've seen her photographs. I'm aware of her, uh, and I I mean I have. I, she didn't really influence this book, but um, I think there's a certain kind of photographer, street. F- street. F- she was a street photographer, um, like Robert Frank, or a m- particular favorite of mine, a photogra- American photographer called Saul Leiter, who died just, uh, I think, a year ago. In, in who is an amazing photographer of street life, uh, very much in the Vivian Mayer mode, but perhaps more. Stylistically conscious, his photographs are beautifully composed and beautifully framed. Um, so, um, all, all all manner of at the end of my book, I have a long li- a, in a long list of names of women photographers in the main who sort of inspired me. But actu- in, in actual fact, Vivian Mayer wasn't one of them because um, I was looking at women photographers of the thirties and the forties and fifties and the sixties in particular. So, um, uh, th- they were the ones that I, whose monographs I bought and whose photographs I looked at. And, uh, but I, again, it's the, it's the idea of the, that snatched moment that, that I think appeals to my taste in particular. Um, I, I think that, uh, all of, all the photographers I really like, and, uh, you know, I've mentioned a few of them, like, Jacques Henri Lartigue, who started taking photographs as a boy before the First World War, is a remarkable photographer. Um, they're all snapshots, uh, and then you get Brassai, uh, Paris by Night, uh, Cartier-Bresson is, is essentially a, a great taker of you know fr- frozen moments of time. Uh, Robert Frank, uh, so on and so forth. But the, those are the f- those are the photographers that appeal to me, and I've analysed why. Um, They do appeal to me. I actually have written a long essay about my theory of photography, if any of you are interested, which is in my book, Bamboo, and it's called 13 Ways of Looking at a Photograph, in which I say there are only 13 types of photograph. Some of them overlap a bit. Um, It was a challenge to to the world. I actually think there are 14 types of photographs now. Um, But uh, the the category I missed out was the miss shot or as it's known, or the bad crop, the the, the 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 photograph that isn't what you meant to take, but very often it's a fantastic photograph. You know, somebody's head is half out of the frame, but it, but it's it's a brilliant photograph. So again, it's that snapshot moment. So um, I was I was very influenced by all manner of photographers in constructing Amory's career, though she does change styles and she. She takes very boring photographs as well as very interesting ones. She takes bad photographs. Um, there's a photograph in the book wh- which she wins a prize for, which is a, a bad crop. Um, so it's that the influence of, f- of living photographers, real photographers, is, is present there and um, reflects to a degree th- the taste that I have. Anyway, I think we have to wind up there. Thank you all very much. Thanks for your questions.